Okay, if I was to ask you, uh, what is the mother of learning, the father of action, which makes the architect of accomplishment, what would you say? Repetition. Repetition is the mother of learning, the father of action, which makes the architect of accomplishment. That's uh, quite a famous phrase, apparently. Um, And repetition is important in the Bible. We looked at this uh, at our table talk, that often as we preach through the whole Bible, you'll see uh, similar themes or the same themes appearing over and over again. And God is uh, in the business of repeating things to his people over and over. And even in our church, uh, as uh, church leaders, we do plan what we're going to preach on, as in the the books of the Bible that we're going to look at. But what we can't plan is exactly what's going to come out in sermons that are months and months ahead. And it seems as though, as we come to Ezra chapter 9, that tonight we're going to hear something that is very familiar and that you could say is a repetition. Because we're going to look at confession, specifically Ezra's confession, But recently, as we've gone through 1 John, we've looked at confession. Recently, uh, over this last uh, six months, we we saw in the Lord's Prayer uh, the petition to forgive us our debts. We've looked at Psalm 51, which is an example of a confessional prayer. And all of those things have come up again and again. And here in Ezra chapter 9, we have confession. And this is not uh, a plan that necessarily has been come up with uh, from us. This is the Lord repeating things to us again and again because he wants to teach us these important lessons. And so this evening as we come to Ezra chapter 9, we come to see a model confession. A model confession. Last time as we looked at Ezra, we saw uh, the sin of the people regarding intermarriage. And we looked at the seriousness of this particular sin and why it caused Ezra literally to tear his hair out. But tonight, we're going to examine his response to that particular sin, but how also it should be our response to any sin, really, that we commit against our God. And so I'm going to read to you Ezra chapter 9 and verses 5 to 15. And we'll examine this model confession. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, We and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. 
He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt and yet, our God, you have, not, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Amen. Now when we talk of a model confession as we read in Ezra here, we're not talking about a confession that as God's people that we are to just recite by rote. It's like the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is good to be repeated, as is Ezra's prayer here, but it's not designed just so that we can uh, read it and say it, but not mean or think about what it is saying. Rather, a model confession, like the confession here, is an example for us in order for us to follow. It teaches us what our attitude should be in prayer, in this case with regard to confession of sin. But as we read it, It is helpful for us to to meditate on the words that are contained here. To help us thoughtfully pray God's word to him as we pray in confession of sin. So it's not wrong to read this to God as a confession, providing we meditate on the words. But at the same time, it is a model for us. Something that we can read that helps us to pray ourselves. Not something by rote. But what is it that we learn about confession of sin from this prayer from Ezra chapter 9? Well, the first thing we learn that when we confess our sin, we must accept the seriousness of sin. We must accept the seriousness of sin. As we came to the end of verse 4, we left Ezra last week sitting down appalled. Appalled at the sin of the people. And he sat there, it says in verse 4, until the evening sacrifice. That word appalled appears twice in those first four verses. And I know we looked at that last week with regard to a specific sin, but this should be our response to sin against God. It should appall us because sin is appalling. He was appalled at sin, appalled. And he sat down there, appalled, until the evening sacrifice. And then, look at the description 
in, verses, in verse 5 of how Ezra expresses how he feels, how seriously he takes sin. It says that the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord and prayed. He sat there until the evening sacrifice. He waited until the time of sacrifice because it was an appropriate time because atonement for sin was being made. It was the time when the animal would be sacrificed that would cover the sin of the people. The animal sacrifices which pointed forward to the great sacrifice of atonement that Jesus Christ made. And it was at that time that he rose from this fasting and, uh, and sitting in, in, in a ba- self-abasement. He rose then in order to pray in confession to God. And because atonement has been made for us, because Jesus has died for our sin, we can stand, we can kneel, we can, we can sit, we can, whatever it is, we can pray in confession because Jesus has paid for our sin. There is atonement. And he rose from his self-abasement. He'd been fasting. Look at how his cloak and his tunic had been torn. His hair had been pulled from his head and his beard. He had done those things, expressing with his body how he felt. And then he fell on his knees with his hands spread out to the Lord and he prayed. His whole attitude How his body was showed how seriously Ezra took sin. This feeling of being appalled, this tearing of his cloak, his position in prayer showed Ezra took sin seriously. Now tearing cloaks and beards may be more cultural, but we should and we can use our bodies to help symbolize our humility before God. That's why uh, the, the position that we talk about in prayer is on our knees. That's not saying you must always be on your knees in prayer. Of course, that's, that's not the case. But there should be times when, when we do that, to express with our bodies our humility before the Lord. And perhaps an appropriate time to do that would be in confession, as we humble ourselves before God. Falling on his knees with his hands spread out was a position of humility, an appropriate response to a prayer of confession. When we uh, were in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago, we were learning uh, about how we should love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We learned that that's the appropriate response to God. And in order to teach that lesson, we had some pictures of different people and how we respond to them in an appropriate way. So we had an army sergeant and we said that that's the person that you salute. We had the queen, that was the person that you curtsy or bow to. These are appropriate responses to the people in the positions they're in. And as Ezra comes to God to confess his sin, he can only fall on his knees and spread his hands in humility before his God. An appropriate response because his sin is serious. So it's not to say that we must 
always be on our knees. But being on our knees is a good and appropriate response before our God, especially when confessing sin. But not only does his body express the seriousness of his sin, look in verses 6 and 7 how his words express the seriousness of his sin. Look at what he prays. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great, because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings, as it is today. Notice this language. He's ashamed, disgraced. The sins are higher than our heads. The guilt reaches the heavens. We have a tendency to play down our sin. We have a temptation to make ourselves sound better than we really are. Not Ezra here. He's so ashamed and disgraced he can't lift his face to God because the sins are higher than our heads and the guilt is as high as the heavens. Later on in the passage, we'll look, he says things like we've forsaken the commands, we've committed detestable practices. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't my fault. It was my upbringing. He doesn't say, well, I just made a mistake this time. He doesn't say, well, I am a broken person, so sin's just normal. He didn't say, it wasn't my fault. It was someone else's over there. He takes it seriously. He confesses his sin and he calls it what it is. And notice the images he uses here. The sins of the people are not little, but they are higher than our heads. The image there is that they are so deep in sin that they are drowning in sin. It's over their heads. If sin was water, they would be underneath it and unable to get back up for breath. Their guilt is not small, but it reaches the heavens. It's as high as it can possibly be. It's as if uh, in in the back garden there's a pile of rubbish that reaches all the way up to the heavens. So high that you can't even see the end of it. That's how great the guilt of the people is. But we like to play sin down. We think, rather than our sin is over our heads and our guilt reaches the heavens, that We just need a bit of a spring clean or a bit of light dusting on the top. Whereas Ezra, this this man of God, accepts that his sin is so high, it's piled up so much that if it was a pile of rubbish in the back garden, you couldn't hire enough skips to throw the rubbish in. He accepts the seriousness of his sin. And then notice how he talks of the serious consequences of sin. This sin has been going on since the days of their ancestors. He's not saying, Lord, this is, only, this is a one-off. This is something that was a slip-up. I just fell into this. No, he says, from the days of our ancestors, we've been doing this. This has been going on, Lord, for a long time. 
And he, he recognizes that they've been punished. He says here with sword and captivity, pillage and humiliation. He's saying, Lord, we've been punished with all these things and we've still not learnt our lesson. There's no excuses here. He was embarrassed, ashamed, disgraced that the people could, in spite of everything that's gone on in the past, all the the consequences of their sin from before, they've sinned again. Ezra and the people knew that they went into captivity in Babylon because of sin, but the big sin that they struggled with over and over and over again was the sin of mixed marriage that led into idolatry. And it led them into captivity and they had done it again and again and now they've been let back into the promised land and again they've done the same thing. Do you relate? Do you relate to what Ezra's saying here? Do you ever sin in a way that you have done before? And you know how bad it went for you last time and yet we've done it again. Knowing the consequences before, and yet we do it again. How foolish we can be. And when we've done the same thing again, we need to come to God without the excuses. We need to accept that this is serious, that we've been foolish, and we need to learn our lessons. Let's not play down sin. Let's not make excuses for sin. Let's accept that sin is serious. And again, this is a familiar story for us. In, in 1 John chapter 1, we looked at the same thing. In, in 1 John 1 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And John sets up that truth about God, and from there says that there's no excuse for sin. Sin is serious in light of the holiness of God. And here in Ezra, he does the same thing. Ezra is a man who knows God. He's seen in God's word that God is light, that God is holy. And because he sees who God is, he can't lift his face to God because of his sin. And it's only when we compare our sin against the light of God's holiness that we can react as Ezra does here and say, I am in over my head. I'm in over my head. We need to be reading our Bibles and taking seriously who God is here so that we can take seriously what God says about sin. But wonderfully, if we were left there, we would be totally crushed under that pile of sin that is over our heads. We would, we would be drowned. But then, the second part of Ezra's prayer acknowledges God's grace. As we confess our sin to God, we need to accept the seriousness of our sin, but at the same time, we come to God and we acknowledge that he's a God of grace. After thinking about the history of their sin in verse 7, in verse 8 we see God's grace. Look at verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, 
The Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. These people deserved to be totally destroyed. Their history of continual disobedience, despite their warnings, meant that they deserved to be destroyed. But at this moment in history, right here, God has been gracious. They weren't destroyed, but a remnant. A remnant is a small group. A small group of people was left that God, by his grace, gave a firm place in his sanctuary. Now, the, the, the phrase firm place literally is, uh, means a tent peg. Now, those that have been camping know that camping is temporary, but it's extra temporary if you don't put your tent pegs in to the, the, into the guy ropes. And so when you put the tent pegs in, what are you doing it for? You're doing it to make the tent stay up. Now, regardless of whether that tent does stay up, that is the purpose of tent pegs. I've had lots of bad experiences with these things. But the tent peg's purpose is to have a firm place for the tent to stay up. The difference with Ezra's illustration is that there's nothing temporary about where these people are camped out. God has given them a permanent place, a firm place. He has pegged them into his sanctuary. They are nailed there with this great tent peg. And the holy place of God, the sanctuary, where no one is able to go, has God's people who are sinners nailed there, permanently fixed into it. They deserve to be destroyed, but rather they are placed in God's sanctuary with light in their eyes and relief in their bondage. Light to the eyes is uh, life, vitality, joy. It's like being refreshed from hunger and thirst with food and water. Given new life, new vigor, vitality, joy. And relief from bondage talks about being given freedom from slavery. What a gracious God. This people that deserve to be destroyed are nailed in his sanctuary, given new life and relieved from slavery. Wow. But then there's more in verse 9. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Now the people, uh, in verse 8, it says, were relieved in their bondage. And in verse 9, it says, though we are still slaves, they were slaves in the fact that they were in bondage to the Persian king. They weren't completely free, but God is with them. God has not forsaken them. Even though they are ruled by this this Persian king over them, God is still with them. And that was shown in that the Persian king, as we've seen through Ezra, shows kindness to them. He allows them to go back. He allows them to rebuild the temple. He gives them money to do so. He gives them protection with armed guards and all these sorts of things. 
The king of Persia has been kind to them because God is gracious to them. But not only that, he has given them new life to be able to rebuild God's house that had been destroyed. And he has given them a wall of protection. This wall of protection isn't a physical wall. It's not the wall that Nehemiah built in the next book along. This is a metaphorical wall talking about protection. And we know it's a metaphor because there wasn't a physical wall all the way around the province of Judah as well as Jerusalem. He's talking about God protecting his people in the midst of the Persian Empire. What amazing grace that God shows his people. As we were singing, it's grace unmeasured. Even though they have sinned seriously, grossly, appallingly, God has shown amazing grace in keeping a remnant for himself, placing them in his sanctuary, and blessing them with life and vitality and joy, and protecting them and not forsaking them. Do you see the gospel here? If you can't, I'm going to show you. Let's see the gospel in these wonderful verses in Ezra, chapter 9. Our sin is serious. We are in over our heads. We have a pile of guilt behind us that reaches the heavens that we cannot get rid of. We are drowning in sin and we cannot get out. There are no excuses for our sin. When we come to the God who is light, we are crushed by our sin and condemned for it. And the consequences are serious. Sword, captivity, pillage and humiliation are serious. But ultimately the Bible talks of hell. And that is what we deserve because our sin is so great. It is as high as the heavens. But notice something in this chapter in Ezra. Notice in verse 6 that Ezra uses the word our rather than their sin. Ezra had not committed the sin of intermarriage. Ezra was blameless in this particular sin. He was a sinner, but in this particular sin, he was blameless. Yet in verse 6, He says, our sins. And Ezra intercedes, he prays on behalf of his people in the place of his people before the Holy God. And this is a lovely picture of Jesus. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12 on the screen there, we read this, talking about Jesus, talking about his suffering, God says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. Not for his own sins, but Isaiah tells us to bear the sins of many. And that's what Ezra is picturing also as he prays. He hadn't committed this particular sin, but he's numbered among his people as a transgressor. 
and he intercedes for the transgressors on their behalf before God the Father. And Jesus fulfills this by bearing our sin on himself, on the cross, being treated as a sinner himself, though he had never sinned. And why did he do that? So that we can be placed in God's sanctuary. Remember how God's people are permanently placed, permanently nailed in the holy place by God's grace. And because Jesus was nailed to a cross to bear our sin, we are nailed into God's sanctuary. We are placed there, given a permanent place in the sanctuary of God, in God's place, where no sinner can go, we can go because Jesus was nailed to the cross. What amazing grace that he has given sinners like us a place in his kingdom, a place in his sanctuary, a place in heaven secured for us. It's nailed there. We cannot be moved because God has placed us in his sanctuary. So God forgives us our sins because Jesus has paid for them. He gives us a permanent place. But then he gives us abundant spiritual blessings. He gives us light to our eyes. As Christians, we have vitality and and joy. That's not to say that Christians are always happy. We're not saying that Christians are those who have to jump about and dance all the time. But there is an inner joy, a contentment with life. Because God loves us. And we love God. And, we, we, and as we live for God, we live as we're designed to live. How God made us to live. And so we have a life of vitality and joy given to us by God. All of these things come from the Holy Spirit. That is God coming to live in us when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is described as our comforter. The Holy Spirit is described as one who gives us joy, who gives us peace, who gives us assurance, who gives us help. He's light to our eyes. Like a a fish is designed for the sea and doesn't live well out of it, so we are designed for relationship with God. And when we have relationship with God, there is light to our eyes. We have the life we were designed to live. And then at the end of verse 8, we read about relief in bondage. Well, the Bible describes a life outside of Christ as being slaves to sin. And this description shows us that we are tied down in sin and we can't get out. But Ezra says, as Ezra says, we're in over our heads. But when we come to follow Jesus, we have a new master who relieves us from our bondage, who gives us the power to do what is right. And again, the Holy Spirit's described as our helper. We have what we need to follow Jesus. There is relief in our bondage. And then in verse 9, the people of God were shown favour by this Persian king, but the Persian king was still in their midst. The Persian king could still cause trouble for the people of God. And although we are relieved from our bondage, we know that we're still facing a battle. 
We're not slaves to sin permanently, but we know that we have a battle against sin. But the Lord has not forsaken us. The Lord does help us. Although Satan still wields destructive power and tempts us to follow him instead, we know that God does not forsake us. He is with us. He helps us. He helps us in the fight. He enables us to obey. And notice in verse 9 that that there are three ways that God doesn't forsake his people. First of all, we see his providential care. That kindness that was shown from the king of Persia was God's hand at work in the, in the mind and the heart of the Persian king. And God is in control of all circumstances, working things out for his glory. He cares for us with providential care. He grants us new life. They had new life that they could build the, sanctu- build the, the house of God. And God gives us new life. The New Testament talks of putting on the new man. The New Testament talks of all things becoming new, that we're new creations. So that we can do the work of God. And finally, that wall of protection. God protects us. He protects us. He surrounds us. Isn't God and a God of amazing grace? Amazing grace. And as we pray in confession to God, we, we come before him and we say, Lord, I accept the seriousness of my sin. But praise God, we don't have to stay there. We can say, God, you are a God of amazing grace. Amazing grace. I'm going to stop there in Ezra 9. There are three other parts of this confession, but I think as we come to the Lord's table, that's actually a really good place where we can stop because shortly we're coming to the Lord's table and at the Lord's table we have opportunity to confess our sin at the Lord's table we come to remember the amazing grace of God and as we think about the death of Jesus we also recognize the seriousness of sin in the horror of his death But before we come to the Lord's table and before we sing, let us just have a time of silence ourselves. Ezra uh, here confesses his sin before God. And I think it's appropriate before we come to the Lord's table that we just spend a couple of minutes in silence considering again the seriousness of our sin. Let's not take this lightly. Let's accept the seriousness of our sin. And then, as we do that, we'll thank God in song and at the table for his amazing grace. Let's pray.
Father, as Ezra prayed, we are too ashamed and disgraced to lift our faces to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. We accept, our God, that our sin is serious, that we have sinned against you greatly in, in word, in deed, in thought, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins by accident, sins on purpose, sins we don't even know about. Our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt reaches the heavens, our Father. May we never play down the sinfulness of sin. But Father, we thank you that however great our sin is, your love, your mercy, your grace, your salvation is always greater still. And so we come now to praise you in song and we come around your table to remember and to thank you for your amazing grace. Amen. Well, let us stand uh, together and 